0: Well, it's always a privilege and a blessing to be able to uh, open God's word with all of you. Uh, I'm excited this morning uh, and next Sunday as well uh, to open God's word and look at the fruit of community discipleship. So please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. Galatians five. That's not Galatians, that's Ephesians. Galatians 5:22 and 23 says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control." Against such things, there is no law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit this week and next, uh, grant us insight into the truth of your word. Convict our hearts where we need it. Expose where we fall short of walking by the Spirit. And Lord, help us to be those who live in this community, displaying the fruit of the spirit for the blessing of those around us. Lord, that our, our love, our lifestyle would be others focused, that this church would be continually uplifted, encouraged, edified, and bolstered because each one of us is demonstrating the fruit of the spirit toward one another. And God, I pray that as we do that, Lord, that you would help us to do that faithfully and that the the community around us outside of this church would see and marvel at the beauty of the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This profound passage here, Paul paints a picture uh, to the Galatians of growing fruit. You get the idea of a, a tree that bears fruit, and it isn't a surprise that that tree bears that fruit. That's what's expected from that tree. Uh, we're familiar here in Skagit Valley with, with growing fruit. Uh, it's, it's very familiar. If you plant an apple tree, you expect it to bear apples. apples. Right. Now, yeah, you don't plant an apple tree and then expect that you're going to get figs. Right, If you were uh, you, you don't walk out like, oh, what? man, I thought figs were going to pop up on this thing. If you plant an apple tree, you expect apples to come out. If you, you planted an apple tree and figs popped out, you'd wonder what was going on in the world. It'd be very strange. And Paul compares that expectation here to your life. The reality is that your actions in your life, your lifestyle demonstrates the contents of your heart, or to put it another way, the fruit that you bear demonstrates the root from which it stems. Just before this passage earlier in chapter five, Paul describes the deeds of the flesh. You could say the fruit of the flesh. Those are the the deeds that manifest in the lives of people as a result of living in the flesh, living according to your own desires, Lives rooted in the flesh produce fruit of the flesh, and it's no surprise. Paul lists them out in verse 19. You can look back there. It says, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. He says that those who practice these things, those whose lifestyle is characterized by these things, Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. In short, these are the consistent behaviors of those who do not know Christ, who do not have a spiritual root and therefore do not demonstrate spiritual fruit. This concept is all throughout the New Testament. Uh, Almost every time you see uh, these words bearing fruit in a passage, it's in reference either to those who do or do not have the spirit. The idea occurs dozens of times. Let's look at just a few of them. In Matthew 3, 8, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees is calling them to a a correct response to the truth. He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Then verse 10, he explains the judgment to come for those who do not. The ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 7, 15, Jesus explains that you can recognize a false teacher by their fruit. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He describes that you will know them by their fruit. Matthew 13, 23 is a familiar passage of the parable of the soils. What happens to the soil that is fertile and receives the gospel in faith? Jesus says the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. There is fruit born in that person's life. Uh, All of John chapter 15, right? The abide passage, Christ is the vine. We are the branches. You abide in him. And therefore, if you abide in him, you bear much fruit. What happened in the life of the Colossian church when they came to faith in Christ? Colossians 1.6, Paul explains that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Over and over again, those who are true believers, not make believers, but true believers, genuinely have the spirit living within them and therefore bear spiritual fruit. There is fruit of righteousness that comes forth. While those who are in the flesh manifest the fruit of the flesh. Those deeds of the flesh Paul mentions in Galatians 5 are contrasted then here with the fruit of the Spirit. That list is the fruit that you see in the lives of those who are in Christ. Those who have the Spirit dwelling within them. If you were to plant the Spirit in the ground, this is the fruit that would shoot out. It's the fruit of a true believer who's rooted in Christ. Now, the tendency when we look at this is to think, man, I need to work harder at these, the fruit of the Spirit, in, to, in, in order to show that I'm a true believer. Okay? I need to, to do this. And that's not the point. The point is that not that you need to, to earn this. It's not that you need to prove this. No matter how hard you try, genuinely, you can't make the fruit of the Spirit appear in your life if you don't have the Spirit living within you. If there is no spiritual root, there cannot be true spiritual fruit. Just like if I go and I stapled figs to an apple tree, that wouldn't mean that that tree was producing figs. There may be the facade built that looks like righteousness, but in time will fade and the true root will come to light. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, actually, in order to correct this false understanding of salvation, the Galatians had slipped into legalistic thinking that by keeping the law, they would earn favor with God and be saved. And so the, the, the letter could accurately be summarized by the words grace alone, Paul wrote with the desire of accurately communicating that Christ set us free from the law and from sin so that we are, for the first time in our lives, able to be obedient. We are able to demonstrate this fruit because of his work within us, not because we're just trying really hard having been saved by God, and then returning to the enslaving sin of self-righteousness, the Galatians were a huge concern for Paul. He says in Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? They had become self-righteous, which ultimately led them to pursue the deeds of the flesh all over again. Which is why Paul gives them a reality check in Galatians 3.1. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is obviously hearing with faith. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? The answer is a resounding no. You begin by the spirit and then you are continually perfected by the spirit as you yield to the spirit through the truth of the word of God. You give yourself over to him and submit to him, give your life to him. While our temptation is a sense that we need to do better to earn God's favor, that's simply not the reality of the fruit of the spirit. And while conviction is a good thing, right? It is a necessary thing. Thinking that you need to accomplish your salvation by your works is a misapplication of the fruit of the spirit. Now there's a balance here because you, you may need to grow in some of these areas. In fact, you probably need to grow in all of these areas. I know I do. But you need to do this through the strength that God provides through the indwelling spirit, not because you're strong and you're mighty and you can do it yourself. That's just gonna lead you to failure. In this passage, we see the nine marks of a life indwelled by the spirit. We'll cover four of them this week, five of them next week. The first is love, love, I believe Paul starts with love very intentionally because it's the overarching and driving force behind all of the other fruit of the spirit. All of these other aspects grow out of love. It is this love that forms the bond of unity between us in our community. Colossians 3.14 says just this, beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Love within our community is what is going to keep us together. It's what's going to keep us united through good times and through bad times. It is that love that Jesus said in John 13, 35, by by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love unites and identifies those who are in the community of believers. There are many words used in the New Testament to describe love. The one used here is the familiar word, agape. This particular kind of love is used of God very frequently. In fact, it is this agape love that is an attribute of God that partly defines who God is. First John 4, eight says, the one who does not love does not know God, why? For God is love. Love is part of God's essence. It is part of who he is. And since this love is so obviously an attribute of God, it makes sense then that those who are indwelt by God will manifest this love toward others. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul doesn't ignore the flesh here. He acknowledges the reality of the challenges that come with living in the flesh on the earth, but he doesn't allow that to hinder him. He doesn't allow that to define him. Rather, he lives by faith in Christ because Christ lives in him. So what is this agape love? What is agape love? It is a selfless self-sacrificing, unconditional commitment to the true good of other people. It is a selfless, self-sacrificing, unconditional commitment to the true good of other people. This is seen Clearly in the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 13, four through eight passage, so clearly connects the attitude of the heart with lifestyle toward other people. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. These are all manifestations of love. If the spirit of God resides in you by faith, then your life will manifest this agape love in these ways. Now, God's love was demonstrated in action, right? According to Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us even while we were still sinners. It's the the love of God that compelled him to send Christ to restore our relationship with him. The overarching characteristic of love is seen in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it is self-sacrificing and selfless. It is others-focused. Every one of those attributes is others-focused. It's considering them. That's why I said it is a commitment to the true good of others. Now, this is the opposite of what the world says love is. Right? The world defines love in a completely different way. Where is the focus on the world's love? It's on you, right? It's on, it's on me. The world says that love is it's that feeling you feel and you feel a feeling that you've never felt before. Could just be that you had some bad sushi. (laughs) Worldly love is selfish love. It seeks to benefit only you. It pursues your pleasure, your desires, your interests, with little to no concern of other people. But that isn't love. Imagine if God were to love that way. True love is self-sacrificing in order to benefit another. True love is selfless in seeking out others' interests before considering your own interests. So you have to ask yourself if this kind of love, this God-like love, does that characterize your life? If you're in Christ, it should, right? Right? It should be the natural overflow of the spirit-filled life. And this doesn't mean that you're never going to sin. This doesn't mean that you're never going to be selfish. The, the reality is that the practice of your life, the pattern of your life, should be one of true love, self-sacrificing, selfless commitment to the true good of another. That you aren't, you aren't content with selfish love. That when selfish love is called out in your life, it, it, it hurts you, it breaks your heart, you're appalled by that in you, and you want it to change. You want repentance. And this kind of love is only possible in Christ. 1 John four nineteen. we love because what? He first loved us. You're only able to love if you have first been transformed by the love of God in your life. Love is not a superficial emotion. It is a supernatural transformation by God in your heart from being selfless, nope, from being selfish to being selfless. So you need to take a look at your relationships and evaluate whether you're demonstrating worldly, fleshly, selfish love Toward those around you, or if you're demonstrating spirit-filled, selfless, sacrificial love toward them, it's looking at the bowls of ice cream and deciding which one you want. That one has three scoops. So, how does this spill over into discipleship in community? Jesus said all men will recognize his disciples by their love for one another. So beloved, we have to look around the room, right? And evaluate how we're loving one another. If we're loving one another. One of the greatest ways to examine your own heart when it comes to your love for one another in this this community of believers surrounding you right now is to ask yourself this question. When I come to church, am I more concerned with what I am going to gain while I am here, or am I more concerned with how I can benefit others while I am here, how I can serve others? True love is going to seek the benefit of others at personal sacrifice and selflessness. If you show up each Sunday with this consumer mindset then you aren't showing this kind of love, some of you don't spend enough time here each Sunday or Wednesday to, to even know if you're showing this kind of love or not. You walk in while the last song is concluding and exit while the closing song is starting. I'm like, oh, hey, oh, Okay. You'll have the opportunity at the ministry fair this afternoon to look at the variety of ministries going on at the church here where you might be able to get involved in serving others rather than serving yourself. So if you're looking at your life and you're like, man, you know what? I don't serve anywhere in the church. I kind of just show up on Sunday for an hour and a half and then I leave. It's a great opportunity for you to evaluate showing love to this community of believers around you. This characteristic of love is going to spill over into every other aspect of the spirit filled life. And that's going to have a ripple effect with discipleship in community. You must first demonstrate love. Second, the fruit of the indwelled life is joy. Joy. This term is significant in the New Testament, it's used over 70 times. In order to understand what biblical joy is, we need to first distinguish it from what it is not. Biblical joy is not merely situational happiness. Biblical joy is, isn't just a smile on your face because something exciting or beneficial happened to you. Right? So you could get a new car, it makes you happy. You get a raise at work, you have a baby, your favorite team might win. That brings, that brings happiness. That brings excitement. Someone might even say, I'm, I'm overjoyed. But this is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about joy. That's situational happiness. Biblical joy isn't just experiencing a favorable emotion, it isn't happiness instead of sadness. This is clear based on the fact that unbelievers experience that kind of happiness, right? An unbeliever gets a car, they're happy. Unbelievers' favorite team wins, they're happy. Right? That's just part of God's common grace on all of mankind is that they get to experience the joys, no, the happinesses of this life. The joy found in pleasant circumstances is only temporary. It's not lasting or satisfying because that experience is going to fade. The car is going to get old, right? And that just leaves the recipient of that happiness wanting another circumstance to bring more happiness, That is what the joy of the Spirit is not. So what is it? Joy of the Spirit, we see in 1 Peter 1:8. It says though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So this is the joy that comes as a result of salvation and future hope. Great joy. Inexpressible joy. John MacArthur explains joy is the inevitable overflow of receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and of the believers knowing his continuing presence. There's great inexpressible joy in that, full of glory because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's not based on your situations Right, that is based on a, a finished fact that Christ has saved you and that Christ has reserved for you a future stored up in heaven. Not only is this joy great and inexpressible, it's also permanent. It's permanent because we, we don't always feel happy, right? It's not, that's not, you stub your toe, right? You step on a Lego, you're not happy in that moment. It's like, that's a bummer. But this joy is permanent because the reason for our hope and joy is found in Christ, and it is permanent. The victory Christ has won over sin and death is permanent victory. Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all, it is finished. Joy is a gift that is granted by God to believers through the Spirit. Yet it is also something that is commanded to us in scripture. Philippians 4:4, 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. The fact is we don't always acknowledge or live in light of this permanent gift of joy that has been granted to us in the Spirit, which is why we're we're commanded to walk in the Spirit just as we have this command to rejoice. If the reality of the spirit living in us is true, and the question comes up, why don't we always feel or live according to this great, inexpressible, and permanent joy that we have in him? Why? Why is that the case? We have this permanent joy. Why don't I always, why don't I always live in light of that permanent joy? Jerry Bridges provides a couple of hindrances to joy First, he says, the potential hindrance to joy in your life is unconfessed and unrepentant sin. The joy we experience in Christ is the result of this close relationship that we have with our creator, that we were created to have. We were created to worship him. We were designed for that. And so when we have that, we experience that joy in him. When King David had sinned, he lived for a period of time and his joy was zapped within him. You see that in Psalm 32, He describes the the difficulty, the lack of joy that he was experiencing as a result of his sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. And finally, he was overcome with conviction, came to God in confession, repentance, and what does he say? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, the joy that is a result of, of your work in my life. So Christian, if you lack joy, to examine your heart and your life and ask are you struggling to live according to the joy that God grants through the spirit? Are you you living in some unrepentant sin? Is there something that you have not dealt with? Something that you are unwilling to deal with? Something that you know is there? You just push it aside. I will stifle your joy. In this community, it could be a broken relationship that you are unwilling to mend. Personal offense from maybe years ago has been undealt with. Sins against others that you're willing, unwilling to confess. These things will stifle your joy. Another hindrance Jerry Bridges mentions is misplaced confidence, misplaced confidence. When Paul commands joy, he says rejoice, In the Lord, he's very specific that the believer's joy is to be found in the Lord and not in anything else and not anyone else, not anywhere else in the Lord. And specifically in the context of Philippians, Paul has just contrasted the joy found in the Lord with putting confidence in the flesh. It's very easy to look at yourself and feel like you can take joy in your own accomplishments this can happen maybe as you see spiritual growth taking place. Maybe someone compliments you on something and you begin to pridefully attribute that to yourself. Like, yeah, that, that was pretty cool. Instead of thanking God for changing your life through the power of the spirit dwelling in you without which you would otherwise continually run after sin, Pride comes before a fall. You see progress in your life. Maybe it's consistent time in God's word. Your prayer life has just really been bolstered lately. You've been serving a lot. Maybe you've conquered a specific nagging sin for a prolonged period of time. Where does your confidence go? Say, wow, yeah, man, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing really good lately. I'm a pretty good Christian. And you should be pray, praying, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I don't just keep running back to that sin. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for empowering me to walk away from that. Thank you for empowering me to be obedient. God, I pray for tomorrow because I know that tomorrow I'm just as susceptible to run right back to that sin. So help me, Lord. Another hindrance that I'm adding is a lack of time in God's word. Lack of time in God's word. If we're to pursue the enduring joy that is found in Christ, that is done in part by spending time in his word. Romans 15:13 says, "Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit." So God will fill with joy and peace in believing. in believing I've spent a lot of time with people who struggle to realize that joy is found in Christ, and, and yet they, they recognize that, that joy is in Christ, but they spend no time with Christ. They spend no time in God's Word, or when they do, it's treated like a checklist. Right? Spent my five minutes in the Bible today. Check Psalm 119, 111 says, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I must be in God's word. My pastor in Texas once said that either sin is going to keep you from the word or the word is going to keep you from sin. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, and third, peace. Peace. Like we've noted with love and joy, this is not peace that the world calls peace. It is not a guarantee of peace with other people or a lack of war. That's not the peace that we're talking about. This is peace that is a result of our justification with God. This speaks of our relationship with God and before salvation that has now been transformed. Scripture describes our relationship with God prior to salvation in terms like enemy, hostile, separated, alienated. This was the relationship we had with God that was going to result only in our judgment and condemnation. Yet, because of Christ, we experience reconciliation and justification with God. That's our relationship with God that is restored. It is brought back to how it is supposed to be. We are made righteous before him rather than enemies because of Christ. This is what Colossians 1, 19 and 20 describes, saying, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This this peace with God that we are granted through Christ then manifests itself by the spirit in our lives and in our community is peace with other people. All right, we pursue peace as a result of having been granted peace with God. Earlier in Galatians 5, Paul had already warned them about this. In verse 14, he encourages love toward one another and then warns about biting and devouring one another. The Galatians had this apparent struggle with a lack of peace in their community. Actions that are opposite of peace are listed throughout the deeds of the flesh. Strifes, enmities, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. None of those bring peace, right? All of those divide, all of those separate. There are tons of verses that talk about this pursuit of peace with those around us. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 14, 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace. Colossians 3, 15, specifically relating to discipleship in community, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Why? Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Hebrews 12, 14, make effort to live in peace with all men. 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11, whoever would love life and see good days must seek peace and pursue it. This effort toward peace and not strife with others horizontally can only come when we have peace with God first, vertically. It comes through faith in Christ. There may be some, someone in your life, maybe several people, that you need to have a conversation with. <laughs> that you realize there's, there's not peace you need to pursue peace and reconciliation with them. You may have sinned against them, they may have sinned against you. It's up to you to make every effort to do what leads to peace, even if they don't respond appropriately. This includes making moment-by-moment decisions as you move forward, that aren't going to stir up strife, that aren't going to, to break peace. So we have peace with God, peace with others. There's another kind of peace that is encompassed here and that is personal peace. It is freedom from anxiety and worry. This is huge in our culture. So many people lived in just a constant state of anxiety in their life, completely lacking inner peace. They would never use that to describe what's going on inside of them, or they'd use words like inner turmoil. This contrast is seen very clearly in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And get this the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. An amazing verse. As believers, there is confident personal peace that we can have in God that's not based on our circumstances, often in spite of our circumstances is a personal peace that knows that God causes all things to work together for for good, for his children. So rather than worrying, you go to God with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You make your request known to him and you trust that he knows what's best for your life. That even if he doesn't answer your prayer the way you want, you can still have peace in knowing that he's doing what's best. In Christ, there is peace with God, peace with others, and personal inner peace. It is supernatural. It is only found in Christ. That's why Philippians says it surpasses understanding. You won't find this kind of peace anywhere else in the world. Love, joy, peace, final fruit of the spirit for this morning is patience. Patience is a fascinating word. Uh, we think of patience and we think of waiting in line. Right? Waiting for your dinner to come out at a restaurant. It's not the idea here. This, this word could be understood as delaying wrath or long-suffering. This word is used to describe a, a godly attitude or reaction to circumstances or people in our life that are unfavorable. It is bearing up under provocation. It could be some sort of sickness in your life, some kind of disease that is harmful, that is lingering. It could be a person who mocks and ridicules you. It could be a family member who is constantly antagonistic toward you. The fruit of the Spirit is the ability to endure long amounts of suffering without growing angry, bitter, or resentful. We should note that this is a characteristic first and foremost of God. Psalm 86.15 says that God is slow to anger. Romans 2.4 explains that believers shouldn't think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and peace. We shouldn't think lightly of that. It's a big deal. God's patience is demonstrated constantly as humanity rejects him in unbelief and sin. I mentioned earlier, you can, you can think of patience in a sense of delaying wrath. You can imagine the patience of God as billions of people all over the planet sin against him every second of the day and he having the power to completely smush the entire earth and just like, okay, enough is enough. Demonstrates his glory through long suffering, delayed wrath and patient Endurance. God's patience is described in 2 Peter 3, 9 as being motivated by wanting to see all of his children that he has chosen come to him. He could just wipe everything out, but he has predestined those who would be his sons and daughters and he is patiently waiting for every last one of them to come to repentance and faith. Believers are called throughout scripture to manifest this same patience in their own lives. This is to be manifest in us because the spirit is living within us. Paul calls the believers to patience in his letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to the Thessalonians, and to Timothy. Colossians 3.12 in particular explains, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, believers are to put on a heart of patience. <laughs> Beloved, if the Lord has so faithfully and consistently demonstrated patience toward you, you too ought to demonstrate that same kind of long-suffering patience toward others, even in the difficult situations in your life, especially in the difficult situations of your life. Is going to maintain that unity that we need to have here Listen, you're all familiar, opportunities for demonstrating this kind of patience is not lacking in your life, right? Conflict is inevitable, especially in community. We have this many people in the same room, it's inevitable one of you is going to do something wrong, right? Probably you're thinking like probably someone else to me, right? Certainly you wouldn't do that. We've seen so many people over the years come and go disgruntled. Things happen, they find unfavorable and rather than having patience, endurance and long suffering to seek peace, they cut ties and leave. Sad reality is it's just a matter of time before they get into the next community and the same thing happens because that community is full of sinners too. (laughs) The nature of living among sinful people. Beloved, if we aren't walking together, united by the Spirit of God, encouraging one another in these things, then the the, the cracks are going to inevitably spread and splinter us apart. It's only through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living within us that we're able to be long suffering through difficult circumstances. How do we do this? I'll give you some practical thoughts from scripture. First, from this passage in Galatians, you need to walk by the spirit. Walk by the spirit. This is continually submitting yourself to the spirit, to the will of God and the power of the spirit in your life. Is demonstrating dependence on the power of the spirit by pursuing obedience that is saturated with prayer and commitment to the truth. And walking by the spirit, you're not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. It is fleeing from those things and running to the spirit. The, sp- the, the flesh would rather explode with anger or sit silently in bitterness or flee from difficulty. The spirit is going to love, is going to rejoice, is going to seek peace with great patience. Second, remember the character of God. Throughout all of these, we have to look to God and we see the perfect picture of what this looks like as he demonstrates these qualities toward us. In the midst of suffering, it's easy to forget that the Lord is sovereign and in control of all things. And that includes the difficult circumstances of your life that he means for your growth. That's what happened to Job. After a long time, Job patiently endured for a long time, didn't he? But after a while, he began to question God. God steps onto the scene and rather than explaining the situation to Job, he just reminds Job of his character. He's like, Job, this is who I am and, and you can trust me. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We can trust him. It's what Christ did, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did Jesus do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. If you're in Christ, you can trust that everything God does in your life, everything is for his glory and for your good, even if you can't understand it. That helps to patiently endure in the midst of suffering. Third, recall regularly God's patience with you. I mentioned this earlier. God demonstrates this to us so much every single day. We need to recall this to mind as motivation for us to live patiently as well. Fourth, demonstrate the character of God when you have patience with others. And as you do that, that is a picture of the gospel to the world around you. This can be a profound witnessing tool. People are gonna take notice out in the community, in your workplace. They're going to notice as you go through suffering, whether it is relational, physical, emotional, or personal suffering, if you have patience in this, if you are rejoicing in that, that's not normal in our world. It provides you the opportunity to share the gospel, to point them to the only supernatural way that you can have these fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience and the rest. Sharing the gospel, you're seeking to make new disciples and then continue to build that community. That is the first step of discipleship in community. Pursue patience in your life through the Holy Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and we will continue next week to see how the fruit of the Spirit should be manifest in every facet of your life. And listen, to the degree that you live for Christ and walk by the Spirit, those various facets of life will bring about growth and change and fruit for your good and for the good of discipleship in our community here at EBC. Conversely, to the degree that you go about life in your own way, seeking your own fleshly desires is the degree that you will wonder why things aren't going the way that you'd like, why you you will lack that love, joy, peace, patience. And listen, if you're sitting in here and you're like, man, I don't demonstrate any of those things in my life, uh, I would love to talk with you about what it looks like to come to Christ in faith, to repent of your sins, to become one who is no longer an enemy of God, but is at peace with God because of His great love for you, and you can experience the joy of salvation. Demonstrate the true love toward other people. Live at peace with all men. Live at peace with God. Live at peace personally. And patiently endure life around you, all because of what Christ has done. It could be you today. If you lack these things, you could receive full forgiveness and joy in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you Lord for the joy and privilege it is to be in Christ. Thank you for the spirit you have granted to us to dwell within us, to empower us, to flee from sin that you have placed within us to convict us of sin and Lord, I pray you would do just that this morning. Convict us where necessary and grow us, change us, mold us more into the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.